This is the concluding section. I know it took me a while to get here, and there's a lot of, there's probably multiple parts to this episode by this point, because only future AR knows how long this episode ended up being. I, at the time, I just uh, recorded this stuff, but you know, it's up to future me to figure out how many parts this is gonna be, because I have a tendency to split things up into multiple parts, but not having the foresight to know how many parts it's going to be. So why mention the number of parts when I don't know how many parts it's going to be? All I know is this episode turned out to be a lot longer than I planned. Like I, the, see, the thing is that, I mean, before I officially conclude, just as like, this this is just an aside really, is that this, like I, I, put, I put a lot of thought into formulating this theory. It's been cooking up at the lab for some time. Um, and uh, the thing is, is that, um, well, uh, I wanted to get it out again before Breath of the Wild 2 comes out because that's pretty important um, for lore and theorizing, obviously. Um, uh, but then the other thing was, was that it, it kind of just occurred to me, like as I was kind of going through my notes and such, just how much else is happening in the background. So, so now I'm going to conclude, right? So what does this all mean to say about triangulation? Like, if you're confused, right, this is the part where I'm going to try and make things make sense, you know, like what can, what can be drawn, uh, what can be drawn based off of this model of triangulation, the intentionality of it, and if we incorporate the encyclopedia and the Hyrule Historia material, and even whatever necessary examples come from the Creating a Champion guidebook, it's like, what is what does this all mean putting it together the premise of this theory was that triangulation goes beyond our surface level examples of having three characters be the crutches of the franchise essentially um and the triforce being the ultimate symbol of the franchise as a whole like when you think of legend of zelda the triforce is what is what appears three golden triangles um that's the whole thing my point was that well triangulation goes beyond just having threes and trios and triads and whatever word like whatever other synonym you can think for having threes of something um it, triangulation goes beyond that there's an interconnected nature to it there's aspects of relationality there are specific examples across the franchise where you can link <laughs> pun intended link certain characters or examples or even entities and items and things like that in relation to our main trio and it all goes to unravel the kind of deep lore that underscores the franchise itself um the thing is is that of course i acknowledge that it's like well if you don't know anything about legend of zelda this probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you and maybe you do know a lot about legend of zelda by this point and this was just an extremely repetitive episode to listen to because it's like, well, actually, there's a lot of stuff I was familiar with. But what I was trying to flesh out was the layers of triangulation, right? There's a lot going on underneath the surface, and it gives us some answers about certain things. Now, um, I know in the case of Breath of the Wild, for example, and this is the reason why I only wanted to focus on three games, because I think this would be a very different episode, also would be a lot longer. This would be a very different episode if I covered multiple games from multiple different timelines because the thing is is that skyward sword and ocarina of time happen in in like a linear timeline the split doesn't happen until ocarina of time happens right so then where breath of the wild is placed in all of this is it's really just up to you know 
subjective opinion essentially actually subjective well that more or less means the same thing it's just it's up to like you know our imagination it's up to us to decide at this point because the creators themselves have not positioned breath of the wild in any concrete timeline or said that this amount of time has passed and then we got to the events of breath of the wild um that does not exist so there's a lot of uh things left to uh, up to interpretation once again, that's why I just wanted to focus on these three games. Our origin game, our catalyst game, and then the game that's just free roaming in the sense that it's like, well, it's just kind of doing its own thing right now. It's not really explicitly connected to any of the timelines or any of the lore of other games. Um, so yeah, taking all those things into consideration, especially considering the guidebook material helped immensely in constructing these theories. Of course, it helps to play the games. <laughs> but you know, um, actually, uh, um the guide like the guidebooks along with the game material is extremely helpful obviously um so the thing is is that uh okay i honestly do not know where to put this bit in so wherever you hear it if it sounds slightly out of place i do apologize um just some other parting thoughts about uh things that i'm thinking about as i'm concluding these theories so the thing is, is that with the with the the ceiling of evil whether it be Demise, Ganondorf, uh, Calamity Ganon even, I, get, I suppose, is that in Ocarina of Time, um, Raru, who's the Sage of Light, I suppose, Raru, he calls upon the ancient creators of Hyrule to seal Ganondorf away into the evil realm. Now, the thing is, is that he's obviously invocating the three goddesses, but we know that with our origin game, Skyward Sword, is that, well, Hylia is the one who sealed Demise away. And Demise is like a primordial form of evil. He would have preceded Ganon, right? Um, now, the thing is that, of course, Din, Nehru, and Fervor do precede Hylia in terms of, I guess, the order of divinity here. Um, but I just find it interesting that maybe there's a kind of interchangeability to who can seal evil away. So it may not be as clear cut as, um, uh, it may not be as clear cut as ensuring that you have Zelda do it, or like, like, which divine figure you're invocating in terms of, or invoking, I suppose, is that the right word? Invoking when trying to seal away evil. Um, and uh, the kind of formula of how one is sealed away, because considering the timelines discussed in the guide, like referencing the guidebook material and stuff, the hero defeated timeline indicates, uh, the hero's defeated timeline indicates that Ganondorf takes over the sacred realm, right? Um, so even if Zelda, who has the potential to seal him away, and Link, who can reappear like as a hero in any timeline, if they still exist, well then there's still a way to circumvent evil, you can still seal him away. Um, it's just going to be that much harder, uh, that kind of a thing. So uh, there must be some kind of, uh, maybe disconnect's not the right word, but there must be some kind of like rupture in terms of the way that the the divine deities that created the land, created the people that inhabit the land and whatnot, how they connect to our fated trio. Now, of course, evil is not inherently born from the like divine actions. It, evil came into existence completely on its own. It's just that how does sealing work then if, you know, there's this premise that Zelda is technically meant to make a mistake. So the magic that she has invested, the divine magic she has been uh, bestowed is that just inherently flawed too. Um, and is not just a, a flaw in the kind of reincarnation cycles of being Zelda, 
you know? And then another thing I note about the Master Sword is that, uh, well, Zelda tells Link when she's about to send him back to his own time period as a child, in Ocarina of Time still, she says that the portal between the Sacred Realm and Hyrule, essentially, is going to be closed. She's she's trying to fix her, her mistake, essentially. She was naive in trying to rule over the Sacred Realm in the pursuit of, protect, of protecting the Triforce, but she couldn't do that because um, it came at the cost of putting Link to sleep for seven years and then Ganondorf being able to acquire the Triforce of Power. Um, uh, so she feels bad for creating the split. Zelda made a mistake. She made a big oopsie, folks. But the key part about this point about the Master Sword is that a portal is being closed. So what I'm trying to like suggest here or point at even is that um, it, like the case with the Master Sword is that it must have like not must. What am I talking about? It does have some uh, divine powers of a kind. It definitely still possesses the voice of Fee, and when it is at its strongest, it glows. It, that's its thing. Um, the Skyward Strike is something that uh, was um, introduced in Skyward Sword, and that shows well. It, the sword glows. It powerful. Like it's pretty straightforward, but. The Master Sword also seems to have evolved over time in what it can do as a weapon uh, that it has been invested with divine power. Not being able to travel through time, it's like the Master Sword also experiences a rupture of its own. There's a kind of disconnect between all other, like, like future Master Swords, if you will, and the forms that they appear in because there's something about the time continuum being disrupted because of the events of Ocarina of Time that the Master Sword cannot function the way that it used to. This isn't to say that, I mean, again, because this is a retroactively created timeline at the end of the day, older games came about because of, um, uh, you know, succeeding games. The, sorry, that, that doesn't make any sense. The timeline came about because of succeeding games rather than the original games that started the franchise. The very first Legend of Zelda game does not come at the beginning of the timeline, you know what I mean? So the thing is, is that the Master Sword has obviously experienced some changes along the way as well. Beginning with when it was originally forged by our first hero known as Link, it's changed since then, and it was able to work as a key to opening the doors to the sacred realm. It, it allowed an individual chosen by the sword to transcend time and space, but it lost that power as a result of Ganondorf being sealed away. So the thing is, is that when Ganondorf is sealed, then it loses the power to create time travel, or maybe not so much time travel as it is to transcend planes. But the thing is, is that According to that theory, is that that sh it should still have that ability in the Heroes Defeated timeline because the Master Sword never actually, like Link was not able to go back to being a child. He remained as an adult, and he remained as an adult and was defeated as one. So that means the Master Sword couldn't accomplish its own destiny of sealing away the evil of of the realm. Right. So then that would suggest that the Master Sword still has like time shifting powers if you will you know what i mean but i think that would be unique to the heroes defeated timeline because if ganondorf is sealed away then the master sword has accomplished its goal zelda will send link back to his time period and then boom now of course there is the timeline where the hero is triumphant seals him away 
uh, but Link remains as an adult. Uh, I still think because the Master Sword accomplished its own destiny of sealing it with evil, that that would uh, that would um, still be the case in the sense that it's like, yeah, the Master Sword loses its ability to have those kind of powers. And also that would go on to show like, what kind of powers does the Master Sword even have really? If, if, if it's this boundless, right? Um, and I don't know how that would connect to Breath of the Wild's Master Sword in that sense. Because the thing is, is that let's say we're situating the, again, I, I am just, I did a lot of this in post. So I don't know what I have said uh, before this, after this, I might not have said what I'm about to say yet. So I don't know how self-referential I'm being. This is very meta, but I don't know what I've said there's been a lot that's been said. The point in case is that I've mentioned before, one of my gripes with Breath of the Wild is that the, ma the Master Sword is not a mandatory weapon to acquire. You can do that if you want, but it's not its not something you have to do. Um, what I'm wondering now is that maybe the need for the Master Sword has also decreased because of that rupture that occurred in Ocarina of Time. So maybe the Master Sword has been weakened since that time. But I think that would only go according to the Heroes Defeated timeline, in that because the Master Sword couldn't do what it was supposed to do, it's it, it's it's lived an unfulfilled life as a weapon. I'm personifying the Master Sword, folks. This is the, but we, we but we know that Fee is the entity that lives within the sword, so technically it is a personified entity, right? It's not simply a weapon meant to destroy evil. It's got an, a mind of its own. If that's the case, that restlessness from Fee, if you will will have carried on into Breath of the Wild, where, yeah, you will have a capable hero who is needed to wield it, and he will help seal away evil with the princess leading the, like, you know, the charge on, on the villain, right? Like, that's still the big part here, but maybe the necessity for the Master Sword is also just... It's... It's important, but maybe it isn't necessary anymore, or maybe it just serves a different purpose. Like, the hero should still have it, but it's like, I don't know. So that's just a testing explanation for why the Master Sword is not mandatory outside of maybe some of the more simpler gameplay explanations. Um, but yeah, okay, so this this turned out to be a lot longer as an aside. Back to the main program. There were they're just like I, I guess maybe like a couple questions I want to pose. Um, so the thing is I'll start off with why is triangulation important? I mean, I already have a section I think called the importance of triangulation, but what I'm trying to highlight here is why it's important. So if we know what is important, like why why is it important? Fleshing it out more. Well, the thing is, is that we see certain themes that appear between our principal trio, our faded trio, right? Link, Zelda, and any version of evil, or for the sake of argument here, Ganon. So between the three of them, there's themes of memory, there's themes of uh, knowledge, so the the information that carries through time in accordance with memory. Um, there's a lot of questions that come about with that. And then I think the I, I guess one of the more important revelations that comes about through this triangulation is imperfection. There's a lot of imperfect things in place. So even when things are peaceful, the way the Legend of Zelda franchise works is it's never going to stay that way. It's, it's, I mean, I feel like that's a bit of a pessimistic take, but it's like, because there's this inward, inherent, intrinsic, think of whatever word you can think of for this uh, definition, like for defining the statement, but it's like, 
just at the roots, the foundation of The Legend of Zelda is that things are kind of meant to go wrong. And the ways that they go wrong can fall on the shoulders of any given individual because the stakes also differ for each of them, right? For Link and Zelda, they pretty much share the same stakes. They have to save the world and they have to fulfill their destinies, right? If they don't do either of those things, um, that poses as catastrophic for everyone. But also if they make a mistake in trying to accomplish those things, that also has very extreme consequences seen in the examples of Ocarina of Time Zelda and even more so in the case of Breath of the Wild Zelda. Um, things are just very, very catastrophic when things don't go well. Um, Ocarina of Time is almost like a taste of what Breath of the Wild gives you the full extent of. If Ocarina of Time was um, the prelude, the kind of uh, appetizer for an apocalypse, then Breath of the Wild is the is the full course meal um, where you get everything goes wrong on every level. Like there's a complete dismantlement occurring in society, um, decimation of populations, um, like the monarchy no longer exists. I mean, that, that happens in Ocarina of Time granted, but it's a, a much smaller area that they're dealing with and the stakes are somewhat manageable. Having to deal with the stakes of Breath of the Wild well after the fact is like, it's. I mean, they made it that way because it's a very different game compared to other Legend of Zelda games, but that also just in terms of a storytelling perspective, it's just like uh, having to deal with the villain of the game that in that belated format is like, it took that long to get to a point where peacetime could eventually return, um, that kind of a thing. So triangulation, and because I'm using that word triangulation a lot, right? The way that I've posed it is that, well, you have three main characters, you have the Triforce, for example, the two kind of go hand in hand when explaining lore and things like that, because at one point or another, all three characters will intersect with using the Triforce in the first place. Um, so the thing is, is that the triangulation starts with them, and then you can imagine kind of like, uh, it multiplies, it divides. So it you can go down in like a graph-like format or something, and it just kind of splits and splits and splits and splits. So the triangulation enters on many different levels, um, that kind of a thing. Sorry about that, folks. Okay, anyways, I think you get a sense of why triangulation is important because it is multi-layered. There's a bunch of different aspects and it affects a bunch of different secondary characters as a result. Like when they're at like the, the concept of the absence of triangulation, what I was trying to flesh out there is that there are key, like other key aspects that contribute to the way the Faded Trio operates, that contributes to the stakes, that contributes to the way that the Triforce is placed in the world. For example, the Sheikah being lore keepers and knowing about the Triforce, this isn't just a secret associated with the royal family, it's associated with another group of people. So having other characters or other groups exist on the periphery of our Faded Trio, as well as the Triforce, um, the absence of triangulation also reveals that multi-layered aspect of it it goes below just our main characters because yes even though the stakes rests on their shoulders like the the fate of the world rests on the heroes link and zelda and in order to stop any form of evil like that that is their thing right um but it's like there's a lot of other things going on in the background so picking apart how each of these characters behave in their given universes and what the storylines demand of them then we can see that it isn't just as simple as having three characters and having that triangulation there's multiple layers below that and then 
just in general, other examples where we see trios being important, like the spiritual stones, for example, um, and uh, things like that. So yeah, again, I think you get the point on why the triangulate, like why triangulation is important. And the next question I want to ask is, what does this mean for the faded trio? Um, because this is a, a, a question of projection, essentially. If um, we know about these kind of core dynamics about each individual character, like we know that Link may have the potential to have some level of foresight. Um, again, because in, uh, the thing is that, of course, there's a, I'm, I'm reaching a little bit by saying that when it comes to Breath of the Wild Link, because he is not able to, um, he's not sensing something that he's never seen before. He actually begins in a state of sleep. Um, and he also possesses no memories, which is different than uh, the previous two links that have, that, like the other two links that are discussed in this episode. So yes, I understand that I am reaching a little bit with Breath of the Wild Link there, but this isn't the only instance I think where Link has a nightmare. He's commonly woken up by something. I mean, even the premise of, uh, again, that game I mentioned before, Link's Awakening, um, the entire game is actually just a fever dream, as I like to put it. Um, none of it is actually real. So when Link wakes up, he's seeing something that doesn't really exist um, or that he technically wouldn't have any prior knowledge about. He washed up on this mysterious island that technically isn't real because it's, it's like a gigantic mirage. And uh, unlocking the seal by uh, uh, waking up this you know, whale-like entity known as the windfish. I don't get why it's called the windfish when it clearly resembles a baleen whale. But anyways, um, waking that, um, uh, waking the windfish up will lead to the revelation that this island wasn't really real. Um, so there's more than one instance, this is to say, there's more than one instance where Link, even outside of these principal three examples that I used, where Link has some kind of intersection with a reality that doesn't exist. Right. Um, so the thing is, is that, you know, if we know that about Link's character and then we know with Zelda that she just kind of inherently possesses knowledge. She seems to be privy to information that no one else is, regardless of her age. That actually doesn't matter, really. Um, in Ocarina of Time, I mean, I always like the encyclopedia's description of her, which is that she's the uh, master of disguise and manipulates time. It's like manipulation when you think about it has like a has like a negative connotation to the word like i don't think anyone thinks of the word manipulation as like a positive thing um so i had asked a question earlier in the episode and i still don't think i can fully like i don't think i actually i, I still don't think i have an answer to it i don't know if i ever will get an answer to it to be honest why zelda was called a traitor in um uh uh what's the game ocarina of time why zelda was called a traitor by ganondorf because you don't ever see her actively betray him. Um, and uh, like, like the, that kind of comment is only warranted if we've known that Sheik is actually not really a, a good, a good, like a good person, like she, well, Zelda in disguise as Sheik. Um, this is actually like, uh, this is technically not canon. I think this is a great read, to be honest, if you want a bit more of a it's not as linear and it doesn't follow the game exactly, but the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time manga kind of gives us an answer to that in the sense that in the manga, Sheik is pretending to be on Ganon, again in Dorf's side. You actually get scenes where Sheik is interacting with uh, um, 
Ganondorf and even the twin Rova, who are these like sorceress sisters who are like, they're twins. They're both like mothers to Ganondorf. Um, and they're like, they're evil, you know, like you get scenes with the, like the group of them together and you see that, you know, Sheik is being kind of suspicious kind of thing. Um, but then it's later revealed as you keep reading that Sheik is in fact Zelda. Um, so then of course the con like the the language of traitor makes sense there because in the manga they use the example of well um sheik was pretending to be on the villain's side and was just secretly helping out the hero um and pretending to monitor the hero in favor of the villain but you don't get that sense that that use of language or any kind of scenes alluding to this in the game so uh that's that's like one other thing that I was uh, uh, thinking about, um, because that is just something that will always make me curious. Um, the thing is that Sheik posing as the Sheikah, I mean, if we consider the example of Impa from Skyward Sword, right, we know that Impa's always really been on the hero side. We know that the Sheikah do still have a dark history, though, like the evolution of the Sheikah. It's been talked about in terms of the example of the Sheikah and Breath of the Wild in an earlier episode. I think it's like season one, episode seven or something like that. Way back in the beginning of uh, season uh, one, I do talk about the Sheikah and Breath of the Wild. But the Sheikah have had a complicated history. They haven't really been, um, like the progression of the Sheikah race has not just been a benign one. They've had their dark moments um, exemplified by the Shadow Temple and the number of skulls that you find in there. and the implication implication that some places i'm like like getting like nervous sweating bullets you know thinking about it is that <laughs> there's some rooms in the shadow temple that suggest that torture occurred there and it definitely would have been for the king's enemies so you know the king was kind of being shady by co-opting the sheikah to do the dirty work for them like that kind of mm. It's, it's just very sketchy. So even if like the Sheikah did begin as this rather benevolent race, they haven't had the cleanest record. And, but then again, it's also not clear all what Ganondorf knows because Ganondorf is intelligent, but there's a reason he couldn't acquire the Triforce of Wisdom in the first place. Um, or that because we know from the hero defeated timeline, we do know that he is able to eventually acquire both pieces if the hero fails. Um, uh, the thing though is that because the hero fails, then he has the chance to take it. So it doesn't naturally come to him, but if he just overrides the power of the other two triangles because he has the Triforce of Power, then it shows that it is possible to still acquire the other two pieces, regardless of whether or not you actually have those traits. Um, that's what that shows, uh, in my opinion. Um, so the thing is, is that like knowing this, it's like, uh, well, again, it's still not clear what, what Ganondorf truly knows about the Sheikah and how well they, they guard lore and things like that, or the fact that they, they've had their moments in history where they've never fully been uh, like good people, if you will. Um, uh, like Breath of the Wild has its own version of that, where the Sheikah, the Sheikah, um, yeah, so I guess I'll just explain Sheikah history a little bit. See, triangulation, it's like a, um, it's almost like a house of cards and at the top you have your three main cards at the at the pillar of the house but then below it you have all these other elements that help to crutch that triangulation okay i think you get the point um but just more on the sheikah because again they're so interesting to talk about is that um in breath of the wild some history right so the legend myth of ten thousand years ago is that well 
everyone like succeeded in sealing away claim to Ganon, right? Except the king then was very paranoid about the Sheikah like having so much power because they were able to research and develop this ancient technology and create the divine beasts. The king at that time was growing scared because he was like, well, you guys are being, they're too powerful right now. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna like order a cease and desist, like stop doing what you're doing and just go back to being like a normal Hyrulean citizen kind of thing. So a group of the Sheikah agreed to the cease and desist essentially. And we're like, okay, we'll stop doing research and, and things like that. Or uh, like, like that kind of a thing. We'll just keep to ourselves. We'll just be, you know, advisors to the royal family. We'll just kind of do our own thing. We'll be good people, you know? But another side of the Sheikah, we're just like, well, that's not fair. We're, you know, an intelligent group of people. We should be able to do what we want. They became, the inverse of the Sheikah known as the Yiga clan. So they their symbols appear as an upside down symbol of the Sheikah symbol. Um, so the Yiga clan become this like militant clan um, of ninjas who uh, take up residence in a slightly cooler part of the desert, I suppose, um, and generally terrorize people in Hyrule while being in disguise. Um, so the Sheikah and the Yiga become two separate entities from that point onwards, and the Yiga also try and ally themselves with Calamity Ganon, so it's like, we're bad guys now, kind of thing, because you didn't let us do what we're good at, sort of thing. Um, so again, the Sheikah are not always, like, it's not the cleanest record, especially considering the Breath of the Wild example, where you do have two separate factions that did originally belong to one single group known as the Sheikah. Because now you just have the Sheikah who are just good, kind of doing their own thing, just trying to survive like everyone else in Hyrule a hundred years after uh, Calamity Ganon attacked. Um, and then you have the Yiga who are just causing general trouble. Um, so yeah, the, the the Sheikah and all of this, again, that question of Zelda being a traitor in Ocarina of Time, I'm always gonna wonder about that. But yeah, I know the original question was, what, is, what does all this mean for the Faded Trio? I mentioned before that there seems to be this kind of intentionality to triangulation, right? Um, it's like Zelda's meant to just always have, like, okay, I understand. Yes, this is actually a rather simple, uh, a simplistic take if you just word it out this way, where yes, Zelda's just meant to always know what to do. Link is always meant to be courageous. Your villain is always meant to want power. Like, like yes, when you boil it down to that, it is. it does sound quite simple. But the stakes for the Faded Trio, it just always shifts because the triangulation's never clear cut. It's, it's, you can boil it down to that example, but it's never as simple as that in practice. Like, uh, again, I like using the example of Breath of the Wild Zelda for this, which is that she shows us what happens when, you know, for a change, the princess doesn't actually want to have these powers. She doesn't want to be uh, burdened with this responsibility. Um, because we never see Link and Zelda before Breath of the Wild Zelda, for example, um, express, like, not wanting to do something. Even if Skyward Sword Link, for example, took some time to fall into his role as the hero, like, to, to like, fit into that role and become the hero in question, even if it took him some time, he still eventually did it. Um, but Breath of the Wild Zelda, like, she openly expresses more than once that she's like, I don't think I'm fit to do this. I don't think this is my forte. I'm not, this is not where I'm strongest, you know? Um, she is a very good example of that. Um, and then of course, you know, the many different forms of evil that we see, whether it be Demise, Ganondorf, or then Calamity Ganon, right? It's just that like, um, I've mentioned it a couple times now, is that he's kind of at the root of everything, right? If the, if the villain of the game didn't want anything, then nothing would happen. If he didn't desire power to the extent that he did, um, then, uh, 
then again, nothing would happen. And it says Zelda aptly states after Ganon, uh, Ganondorf is sealed away in Ocarina of Time, heroes are not needed in peacetime. Well, that peacetime is rather temporary when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, because there doesn't seem to be any permanence to peacetime either in any version of Hyrule or the land that Link and Zelda reside on. Like there's just always some kind of chaos, you know? Um, and with that being said, oh my God, chaos. The world once began in chaos and things like that, and then didn't forge the land that everyone lived upon. Sorry, I, words. You know, there's just a very specific words now where it's like, I hear it, I'm like <gasps> theorizing time or lore explanation time. Um, but anyways, to properly answer the question of what this means for the Faded Trio is that, um, because I do also want to address this question of what does this mean for succeeding Legend of Zelda iterations in the franchise? If we're contextualizing future games with the example of a Faded Trio. Um, the thing is that we know that Ganon, Ganon is not the only villain that exists in the franchise. He's the most recurring one, but he's not the only one. Um, uh, that being said, um i think uh, well actually i don't know if that's a fair claim to make because it, it really does depend what i feel like breath of the wild there's a from a from the perspective of like game production and less so about this like the lower perspective of things i feel like it did because everyone really positively responded to the game i feel like it's it's shifting the directions of the game a little bit I don't know if it's actually going to return to that kind of formula that Ocarina of Time and Skyward Sword have, for example, where there's a lot of, uh, there's adventuring, but it's quite limited in a sense. Um, uh, you have puzzles to solve and dungeons to adventure through, and then you have certain bosses to defeat. Um, I don't know if they're actually really going to just stick with the Breath of the Wild formula, where everything was entirely optional and you could just do whatever the heck you want. Um, I know I personally prefer the former. Like, I don't get me wrong, I have an entire season dedicated to this game, so I've got to like this on some level. Um, I do really enjoy Breath of the Wild, and it is such an interesting game in a lot of different ways. But it doesn't, it doesn't really have the same, it, it has different kinds of charms, you know what I mean? What's charming about Breath of the Wild is not what makes Skyward Sword and Ocarina of Time charming. Those games are charming because they actually, they, they just feel a bit more like Legend of Zelda games. Breath of the Wild does not have as much of a Legend of Zelda feel to it, which sounds kind of funny to put into words, but um, that is that is the case. So I just wonder what this also means for the, again, the faded trio in question. Um, are future iterations uh, going to see the similar kind of triangulation where Link has some kind of foresight? um and things like that zelda continues to possess wisdom i think like that's just i think that's her thing and then whatever form of evil we get probably ganon you know what's what's going to be driving him are we going to get any further insight into his uh thinking because the thing is that even if we can explain how demise thinks about things and how ganondorf thinks about things that doesn't explain how calamity ganon thinks because even if there is some kind of reoccurrence in evil and your villain entity possesses the same will as other villainous entities in the evil realm kind of thing, um, even if that is the case, then it's it's going to be different every time. And again, one of my biggest questions about Calamity Ganon is to what, like, to what degree does he actually know what he's doing? Some bits of his takeover of Hyrule feel too calculated for him to just be some kind of rampaging beast that just happens to wreak havoc on the land. Like it, it, it feels a bit too planned for that to be the case. Um, so I guess this is a good segue into asking, I think, 
the big question of what does this mean for Breath of the Wild 2? Well, I have covered uh, some of the trailer footage that's been released. Now, I think a lot of that footage is not confirmed. Um, uh, but that being said, I mean, I am also just mostly doing this from memory because my focus for this episode was not necessarily to project on Breath of the Wild 2. I don't want to make any clear cut statements until the game actually comes out. Um, uh, Cause it would be a bit, it's, it's a bit difficult to try and formulate concrete theories based off of beta footage, essentially. Like, uh, like it, it's, it's just not gonna be, it's not, it's technically not canon in that way, you know? Um, so I guess my last question that I want to address is what does this mean for Breath of the Wild 2? Well, based on the trailers that we have seen, there is a skeletal figure that greatly resembles Ganon between the red hair, um, the Gerudo symbols, um, and barbs, and uh, now Malice still seems to be a part of the equation because of the Malice eye that appears on his head. Um, so um, there's that aspect of it. Um, uh, where was I going with this? Okay, my point about uh, Ganon in uh, Breath of the Wild 2 is that from what we've seen is that Zelda gets sucked down into the earth. There's a lot of sim like symbolism as well where uh, Link and Zelda are adventuring through some kind of subterranean temple. Now, if you remember with Demise, right, and Hylia, is that demons emerged from the fissures of the earth, so they came out of the ground. Um, Link and Zelda appear to be going even closer to, like, not the Earth's core, obviously, but they're definitely below ground zero when they're adventuring through this area, and it seems to imply that they end up in some kind of chamber that houses the skeleton, as uh, the skeletal version of Ganon. Um, I think there have been some, uh, like, I, I've made comments about this before in various other episodes theorizing about this new footage, as well as, I think, when the first initial trailer, I think it came out like almost three years ago or something like that, which is crazy to think about. Um, uh, Cause I think that's when they announced that it was in development. Um, I, I think that would have been back in season one. Um, so whatever episodes I have addressing uh, Breath of the Wild 2 is that I believe that they were going into this kind of subterranean temple area. There's a good chance it's below Hyrule Castle and Ganon, skeletal Ganon is trapped there by some mysterious green hand, and we don't know the role of this green hand. Um, uh, Link's seen wielding it at some point, um, but again, the role of it is not entirely clear. Um, so the thing is, is that, uh, but again, I think some of the more recent footage also suggests that Link actually is going to go up into the sky. We see a lot of floating aisles. Um, a lot of the the jumping mechanic where it shows Link jumping off of like the aisles and floating downwards, this to me is very referential to Skyward Sword because like the character modeling is almost the exact, like it's really, really similar. Um, so there's a, there appear to be nods to Skyward Sword, but even may like maybe even more than just nods to Skyward Sword, it might be utilizing that mechanic again, where instead of flying down to the surface, Link has to go up into the clouds. I wonder as well, because considering the role of the servants of the springs, um, are we going to see the dragons more? Are they going to become a part of the story? The dragons in Skyward Sword are a part of the story. You actually interact with them, talk with them, you do things for them, you help them out. 
Um, like Lunaru's like sick when you find him. I think Elden is just trapped. And then uh, Farron is like, uh, well, the forest is flooded. Help me out here. Like, <laughs> like you help them out and stuff. You actually interact with the dragons. Now, as far as I know, based on how you interact with the servants of the springs in Breath of the Wild is that, well, the only dragon you get to properly interact with is Nadra because you free it from malice. And then it kind of encircles the spring of wisdom um, after you free it um and that kind of a thing but it doesn't actually like full-on interact with you there's no kind of communication that happens you know what i mean so i wonder if they're going to play off of that a little bit more of course the reappearance of sheikah technology and the way that that differs from the way breath of the wild shows sheikah technology that is also evident so we can see the role of the sheikah evolving as well now some of the footage some of the footage uh of like breath of the wild 2 also seems to suggest that there is a castle underneath Hyrule Castle. I find this particularly interesting because Skyward Sword is the first time we see something like that, I believe, although technically not. Because in A Link Between Worlds, the premise of that game is that, well, I, I guess I don't want to go into the premise in full detail, but in A Link Between Worlds, Link actually can travel through paintings and he can access this parallel version of Hyrule known as Lore Rule. So it's literally like, under it's a technically underneath it's a parallel dimension kind of thing um so this is i'm not saying skyward sword is the only time we see something like this but the imagery that we see in breath of the wild 2 teasers and trailers and stuff it specifically reminded me of skyward sword which is that i mentioned before that this uh statue of hylia rests on this isle that's connected by bridge to the rest of skyloft um but underneath it is uh um, is it called the Isle of the Goddess? I forget my terminology, but that's where the Triforce is located. And it's not an easy place to access. It only reveals itself once Link meets the conditions to reveal the location. Um, it's it's not known for, beforehand. Um, this is preceded by Link actually like clearing the final Silent Realm trial, um, the Goddess's trial, right? And then he's actually able to access that area. Um, but... Um, that's interesting to me because, you know, Skyloft and the land of it is supposed to have been the origins for high, the people of high, of like of the high, of Hylian descent. That's supposed, that's supposed to be their origins as Skyloftians, right? And like the Skyloftians will probably return back to the surface or something like that. Like the Hylian population will get its start at some point in history. And geographically that lines up really well with Breath of the Wild's geography and where Hyrule Castle is placed. So the temple of, of uh, the, the kind of the statue of Hylia in Skyward Sword, it falls back down to the ground. Um, I think after the imprisoned is sealed for the third time. Um, so it shoots right back down to the ground. So then instead of just the sealed temple, you also have the temple, like the, the statue of Hylia situated on those grounds. It actually covers the area where the imprisoned is sealed, it falls right on top of that. But again, geographically, that lines up really well with um, uh, the center of what would become Hyrule. Now, I'm not saying that Skyward Sword's geography is the exact same as Breath of the Wild's geography. I think it's a lot more difficult to try and make some kind of claim that geography also has to line up over these different time periods. The land shifts. We have to think of how, like, using, like, you know, 
concepts of geology and things like this. We know that the Earth does not look like it did when the dinosaurs were around, for example. We don't have Pangaea anymore. The land has split up over time. The same will happen to this land that has become known as Hyrule, right? So, um, but it's just interesting that there is that parallel, as well as this concept that there is a temple or some kind of an underground area linked on the same aisle as something else on top. Um, again, it's a little bit hard to, t it's not a little bit, it is hard to tell if that actually is the area where you will find um, a skeletal Ganon in Breath of the Wild 2. I'm very curious in what direction they're going to go with that in because uh, considering the triangulation of the Faded Trio and that there are, there's, there are some similarities in Breath of the Wild 2 compared to Skyward Sword, kind of returning to the beginnings, you know what I mean? Um, if, if that's the case, I just wonder how they're going to treat Ganon. I think that's my biggest, like one, one of the, one of the things that's on my mind the most, because I'm just like, well, gosh, gosh, golly darn, I do not know what's going through Calamity Ganon's mind. And to know that he has a skeletal form, um, the implications of that are really interesting because I think the like rough theory I'm working with right now is that Calamity Ganon um, not discarded like the human body, but or I guess in a way he did, I suppose, because uh, he just opted to be in full, like in a fully beast form or to not be humanoid at all. Like he just opted to do that instead. Um, and the fact that we, you know, there are no depictions or records indicating that Calamity Ganon once did have a humanoid form. Now, if you if you know what happens with the Gerudo and what they tell you, like what Link is told in Breath of the Wild, you'll know that he was once a Gerudo man. So yes, you do know that he existed in that form, but you don't know what he was like then. That the, the lack of knowledge surrounding Gerudo, like sorry, the lack of knowledge surrounding when Ganondorf or Ganon was actually a human. Um, that for me, I would be curious to know more about and how they wrote that in. I wonder what's going to happen to Zelda though, because the, even though there is that similarity between Skyward Sword Zelda and Breath of the Wild Zelda, where they both get sucked down towards the ground, um, the thing was is that when that happens, when that happens to Zelda and Skyward Sword, um, she goes to the Sealed Temple. I think she meets the old one. Like she, she's able to go about her journey, and what what she needs to do is fairly clear. The thing is that with Breath of the Wild Zelda though, is that where does she go from there? What is she gonna do in the meanwhile? Because the Breath of the Wild Zelda for me does not appear to be the kind of Zelda that's just gonna stay trapped the entire time. Uh, she just does not come across that way. Um, so again, I'm just really curious as to what direction they take the Faded Trio and how they will continue these themes of triangulation. What further imperfection are we going to see in Breath of the Wild 2, for example? Is it going to be consistent with some of these other examples that I've talked about in this episode? Like, is it going to be consistent with the other examples I've referenced? Um, is the Triforce going to reappear in some way? Is there uh, not necessarily confirmation that Zelda's the only one wielding it, but where was the Triforce returned to? Where is it kept now? Um, how is it safeguarded now? If basically what the end of Breath of the Wild, like the true ending of Breath of the Wild is implying that she doesn't necessarily need to use those powers anymore so she's not holding on to it in any way she doesn't hear any voices anymore so it's like well she's kind of distanced from that because like i mentioned or if i haven't already deja vu again skyward sword link when he puts the master sword back in the stone and says goodbye to fee um as it's decaying demises 
soul. Um, the thing is that he's put it to rest now and he doesn't need to pick it up for a very long time. Only a future heal will have to do that. Um, but it's like, uh, he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. So Breath of the Wild Zelda is actually kind of similar in that, well, once she needs to use her power, she's just kind of up, like up and done with it. She doesn't need to worry about that anymore. Um, the ending, the true ending of Breath of the Wild also suggests that one of the divine beasts is, is uh, not working properly and that they also want to give the king in the in that region, they want to give that king closure about one of the pilots who was defeated by the blights to give them closure. Um, so I don't know if they're going to incorporate that into the story of Breath of the Wild 2 either, where we see after the fact, how does how do Link and Zelda deal with Hyrule once uh, Calamity Ganon has been dealt with? How is Ganon going to reappear and what other troubles are in store for Hyrule if we're considering the similarities it has to uh, Skyward Sword? Now, the thing is, is that the tricky thing of having a sequel is that we already know the land of the game. So we already know its limitations. Breath of the Wild is a very expansive game. There's so much to explore and do in that single game. But once you know where its boundaries are, then you know where its boundaries are. So how much is the geography of Breath of the Wild gonna change? Are we gonna see more reformed buildings or still gonna be in a relative state of ruination because the land is still in the process of healing? How many years after the fact uh, will will this take place from Breath of the Wild? These are all important questions to consider because we know that timeline matters. We know that when things happen matters. We know that when the imperfection occurs, that also very like very much matters. Um, I'm not saying like age per se, but if Link and Zelda are essentially 117 years old, um, then it's just like, well, how much how much later after the fact uh, are they doing things? Um, are we going to see the reappearance of the voice of the sword communicating with Link? Um, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case, to be honest, because if they were going to do that, I feel like we would have seen that in Breath of the Wild. But we didn't, because they just really changed up the way that that game does stuff. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of other questions. Are we? How, how is the role of the Sheikah going to reemerge again? Um, will Ganondorf have any other kind of subordinates to him? Will he have any sidekicks, if you will? actively aiding him rather than just a bunch of villainous entities roaming everywhere throughout the land um how is that gonna work what's the revival of ganon gonna look like because the trailers do seem to indicate that skeletal ganon's not gonna stay that way you know what i mean or maybe maybe it's that skeletal ganon is in danger of waking up and reforming as a human due to whatever kind of things are afoot um, and that needs to be stopped. But then I'm just wondering, like, how are they going to work that into the premise of the game? Because it made sense in Skyward Sword, where it's like the imprisoned, there was the threat of it, like, breaking out of its seal and it needed to be resealed. But there were other things that you needed to do in the meantime to ward it off. The thing with Breath of the Wild, though, is its geography is not really inclined to work that way. Like, because in, in Skyward Sword, you're going through the cloud barrier, going back to Skywalk, and you go to a bunch of different areas that aren't connected to one another because when you go to Skyloft, or when you, let's say, for the sake of example, when you're leaving Skyloft from Skyward Sword, there are three different portals that you can enter through, through the cloud barrier, or technically four in total, but three main ones are going to be going through a lot. And they each lead to the different areas of Farron, Elden, and Lanayru. But you can't access any of those three locations, like, by going through the other. Like, you can't get from Farron to then Lanayru, and you can't get from Lanayru to Elden or Elden to Farron. You can't do that. You can only ever adventure through those individual locales. In Breath of the Wild, everything's connected. The geography is all um, linked, you know? Uh, there's no actual, like, borders where it's like, well, you can only go to this place if you 
go up here and do that. And again, because there is this suggestion that Link will be up in the sky, which is again, very reminiscent of Skyward Sword because he's gonna be up in the sky. Um, is there gonna be like some kind of, uh, uh, how 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 do I word this? Like some kind of thing uh, above the cloud barrier, um, where Link can adventure through, and then that's how he'll do things. Um, it's very perplexing, very interesting though. Um, and uh, again, you can see that there's a lot of different questions we can ask in regards to triangulation and imperfection. Again, this was all to reveal that you know when you think about Link, Zelda, and Ganon, when you think about the Triforce, it's not as simple as just that like just be, those names being spelled out for you these are not simply characters you're not it's not simply your hero princess and villain and it's not simply the emblem of the franchise it's uh there's a lot more at play here when it comes to the lore of these three characters and of course the triforce thank you just just as a really quick aside before i officially conclude mostly because i do not know where to put this you know edit in because there's so much going on um first of all yes so thank you for being patient listening to this uh, theory. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention to just kind of tie up everything is that I mentioned that there's a kind of intentionality to this triangulation, right? It's, it's basically, if you boil it down, it's a series of patterns, right? But it's not even just about repetition. The patterns themselves are similar. Like if I'm going off of this model saying that Ganon perpetuates cyclic, uh, cyclicality, um, Zelda is kind of meant to make a mistake. Like, or a mistake will inadvertently occur because of her. It's like, those are considered patterns, right? But it's not so much that history repeats itself. It always takes on a different form. It evolves, it changes. So the wording of like patterns and things like that is also something I wanted to keep in mind, which is that even if we see these areas and moments of repetition in the franchise and in the three games that were the focal points, uh, that were the focal points of this uh, episode, um, it, it, there's there's always going to be a kind of shifting to it. It's not static in the way that uh, the patterns reoccur. There's always going to be some kind of distortion to it or some kind of thing that complicates it even further. So yes, this is a really quick aside. And honestly, this is probably the only thing I needed to say. And it just ended up being how many hours this ended up being. So I apologize for that. Well, that was an anticlimactic finish, but uh, this was the Lore Research Lab's findings on uh, what there is to know about the role of triangulation in the Legend of Zelda franchise uh, regarding the Legend of Zelda franchise. Thanks for tuning in, folks, and I'll see you next time.